Welcome to episode number 275 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Ryan. I'm Jill. And I'm Michael. On this week's episode of Destination Linux, we've got a community favorite. One of the most requested segments we get is Jill's treasure hunt. And guess what you get today? Jill's treasure hunt. Jill is going to go into her computer museum and show us a piece of amazing hardware that she has hidden away. Then we're going to discuss, is it time to let go of DuckDuckGo? I actually came up with that rhyme. I want everybody to know usually those <laughs> clever rhymes are from Michael, but this one was like all on my own. I feel like that's an amazing I like piece it. of work there. I like it. I yeah. approve. Awesome, Ryan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. So last week, I talked about some of my adventures in Linux and open source. This week, we're going to get an update of what Michael's been up to lately. So Michael, what have you been up to in the world of open source this week? Well, open source, I've been doing all sorts of stuff. In fact, I've been working on some website development with some open source software in preparation for some changes that the network is going to be having. We're going to be adding some new types of podcast and content to the network related to geek culture. And this is meant with yes. we need to kind of do a refreshing of some things, you know? There are so many times when we end up talking about to our community on in our forums or chat rooms or with our patrons in the patron only post show about Star Trek, Star Wars, Stargate, movies comic books, and all sorts of stuff that geeks love. Wait a minute. I thought mm -hmm. Star Trek and Star Wars were the same thing. No? Oh! Well, I mean, oh, I mean no, no. obviously, obviously Vader is the best Star Trek captain. But, yes. so, <laughs> so we've decided to add this kind of content to the network, and this means we need to make a few changes, other changes as well. With the, this, this expansion of content, we're going to be changing the name of the network from Destination Linux Network to Tux Digital. Tux Digital is going to be the new home for all our Linux content, as well as the soon-to-be home for our geek culture content. Of course, this podcast, Destination Linux, will remain as the flagship of the network. Everything you know and love about the Destination Linux network will continue as Tux Digital, plus we're going to be doing a lot more cool stuff. Also, as a nice bonus, people won't need to be confused about the difference between Destination Linux network and Destination Linux podcast. Which happens all the time all like, the time they're like i love your latest destination linux network episode i'm like mm. so this is a good change for that too for sure yeah yes so with the name change to tux digital we want to issue an open invitation we're putting out a call to find new podcast and hosts who are interested in joining the tux digital family you'll find a link in the show notes to the forum post for more information about how to do that we're also going to be doing like a gradual rollout for all the different things that we're changing because there is a, a lot of things to change uh, this is a rather big uh, undertaking, so this is not going to be transitioned to everything immediately. We are rolling out some changes today with the new TuxDigital.com website, which, by the way, TuxDigital.com, go check it out, and a lot more to come. But we have also have a few things that are still left to finish, and over the next week or so, you'll see some stuff changing around the network here and there. Uh, but to make it simple, we're going to have everything centering around the new TuxDigital.com website, so you can stay up to date with everything by just going to TuxDigital.com. One of my favorite features is you can go to the TuxDigital.com contact form and you can reach any show right from that form. So now you don't have to memorize Yay. all the different email addresses for different shows. You can contact them all in one place at TuxDigital.com. But I have to mention Cubicle Nate, who's also part of Tux Digital Network now, 
mentioned that his favorite Jedi is Harry Potter. So clearly we need to get <laughs> Nate uh, on one of the geek culture shows. Of but, course. Of yeah, course. he's clearly an expert in all of this. But I absolutely love this. I'm so excited that we can get into geek culture as well because we do spend so much time with our patrons and after shows and other things, even in just chat. Gosh, if you mention it to Michael at any point, anything about Star Trek or Star Wars, it's a two, three hour conversation commitment. So I think it just fits perfectly also. to bring yeah. some geek culture shows onto the network. And so this is going to be an awesome change. Yeah. I'm very I am excited super about excited it. about this. I'm, I'm, I, I will be try probably jumping on every show that is the geek culture thing here and there once like you know they're probably gonna have to fight me away because like we, we've already heard your opinion of star trek michael but it's <laughs> gonna happen it's gonna happen yes next generation is the greatest star trek he agrees deep space nine so in our community feedback this week it comes from lauren and if you want to send us your own feedback you can go to tuxdigital.com slash contact to get in touch with us now or join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. Lauren writes us to say, first, thank you for the wonderful show. I've created a pull request for the Michael AI, and it would bring me great pleasure to see it merged. I would like to let you all know right here on this show, this exciting show, we're making all these changes. Mm -hmm. I have merged this amazing request out there. Oh, it's done. Oh. It's out there right now. I normally only listen to the audio podcast, but I'll try to watch live this week to see Ryan merge it. So I, I didn't merge it live. So sorry I missed you on that one, but it is merged. It's in there. This new Michael AI code is unbelievable. Listen, this has been my dream since, you know, I started the Michael AI. I said, we need a Siri-like entity, but smarter, better, bigger here in open source and Linux. And that's why I invented Michael AI. I've mapped his entire brain into 140 lines of Python code. And you can go check this amazing GitHub project out yourself. They also want to comment on the fact of Deepin's facial recognition software reminded them of Bolt Gold's Howdy software. It's been around for at least four years and it's fully open source, much better than the Deepin software that you were calling first of its kind. So first of all, thank you, Lauren, for the amazing code that you committed. One of the commits Lauren made, Michael, by the way, is that now the Michael AI properly says, come get my T-shorts instead of T-shirts. Oh, right. That makes sense. Oh. That makes sense that Michael AI. I was, I was curious what the addition yeah. was, and that fits yeah. quite well. For those who don't know, there was a couple episodes, actually, I think like four or five, of Twill where I was talking about the deal in store and I could not say the word T-shirt, and T-shirt came out every single time. So I just started leaving it in the show because it happened so often. And then when I finally said it correctly, I celebrated, but like in a ridiculous way. And so I think I think that's a good addition to Michael AI. Yeah. Yes, I it's more AI. It's more Michael-like now than ever. It's definitely before. more Michael. -like. It sure is. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Also, the the thing about the. Uh, Deep in software, we, we, we weren't saying it was the first of its kind. We were saying the first distro to implement something like this because uh, there are other projects that do this sort of stuff, but those are no, no other distro that I know of has implemented this as a default. Like you'd have to install Howdy, for example. Uh, but I do, um, I, I, I have actually forgot about Howdy as a project. So I'm glad you brought that up because it is something that people might want to check it out. We played with it in some of the episodes in the past. We talked about Howdy. Maybe it was a software spotlight or something like that in the past. I remember playing with it 
It was a little, yeah. it was good, but it was a little buggy, but you know, it is a cool project out there. People can contribute to for sure. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And I also like that. It's uh, it's kind of like a reference to Microsoft's hello. So it's howdy. Yeah, like definitely. It. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll be small enough to fit on something I'm going to show in my treasure hunt. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, I didn't want bloat in Michael AI, so I made it as precise as possible, Jill. So I really hope you can get Michael AI to work on the treasure hunt. That would be exciting. <laughs> but before we get to the awesome treasure hunt, you need to say howdy to our sponsor for this week, which is DigitalOcean. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but it doesn't really have to be. So at DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. And with DigitalOcean, you also get predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, whether you have a team of one person or a team of a thousand people. With simple, powerful cloud computing at DigitalOcean, you can have your team grow to whatever you need it to be. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving away $100 credit, a $100 free credit on do.co slash tux2022. Again, go to do.co slash tux, T-U-X 2022. There's endless amounts you could do with their awesome cloud platform. So get, go get started with that $100 free credit at DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform at do.co slash tux2022. And I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. All right, Jill. It is time for the treasure hunt. So this yes. week, I asked Jill to find us a piece of hardware from her museum that would baffle younger generations. And the reason why I did this is I started thinking back on some of the episodes, Jill, where you mentioned that you use floppies to store your passwords and things like that. And there were a lot of fun conversations we had with individuals who were like, what are floppies? What do you do with them? How do you access them? Those type of things. So Jill, what hardware did you find for us to baffle those who are a little younger in the crowd? <laughs> okay, so speaking of which, for today's treasure hunt, I'm going to talk to you about this. <laughs> and I knew this would make <laughs> Ryan and Michael laugh. The floppy. <laughs> oh my goodness. The that floppy. was why I wanted to make sure that the merge request would uh, for Michael AI would fit on one of these. Does it? Does it actually work? <laughs> it probably would fit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm sure Almost it would. I mean, it's 140 lines of code. I think the so entire Michael AI project will fit on that. <laughs> so this little storage medium is actually what you see as the save icon on almost every application you use today. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's actually it what I've heard known. people call it and say, "Oh, you have a 3D printed save icon." <laughs> exactly. Exactly, Michael. <laughs> And yes, it is known as a floppy disk. You know, here are several in my collection. Uh, I have hundreds, uh, honestly, <laughs> more like a thousand. <laughs> so <laughs> these are uh, some of my student back <laughs> in, in the early 90s. <laughs> oh, wow, that's nice. <laughs> and then here is, for instance, here's one of my favorite Linux distros on a floppy, XWOF, X Windows on a floppy. Now, was that a single distros. floppy, an entire distro yes. on one floppy? Wow. On one floppy. See, that's where there's no bloat, Michael. You know there's yeah. no bloat in a distro. <laughs> there's no bloat. 
I didn't yeah, even know that no. that distro ever existed. So that's cool. Yeah, this is this is the smallest uh, distro with an X Windows <laughs> X Window Manager. <laughs> wow. So that's and very shocking. I also got new. I have Nuke Linux here. I've got Tom's Root and Boot. Uh, a lot of people will recognize those names that have been around in Linux for yep, that <laughs> a long one. I totally time. got. Yep. <laughs> Blue Flops Linux is another one. <laughs> Don't know that one. <laughs> But first, I want to go into a little bit of history of the floppy disk, because this is very important as why it became the iconic save icon. <laughs> the first commercial floppy disk uh, developed in the late 1960s, yes, the 1960s, were 8-inch in diameter, like this one here. Nice. <laughs> That's bigger than your head, Jill. Yes, <laughs> it is. And it is, you know, truly floppy. That's it is where they deep. got the name, floppy disk. So for those who are just listening, Jill is holding up this black square artifact from ancient Egypt, it looks like, artifact. potentially, with hieroglyphics <laughs> in it and a hole in the middle, and uh, putting it into an envelope sleeve. Very That cool. you would normally have with artifacts, yes. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> yes, and I ha I still have quite a few of these because the first flop disc I used were the eight inch floppy disks in the seventies. <laughs> that's awesome. See, that's that I didn't. I've never seen the eight inch. That's what's interesting. I've seen the five, and I've seen the cool. course the three and a quarter, but I've never seen the eight inch. <laughs> yeah, I got quite a few of them here. <laughs> and how much storage could go onto one of those eight inches? The eight inch ones actually were higher than you might think. They were. 360 kilobytes. Wow. Which is actually pretty good. The first commercial floppy disks developed in the late 1960s were eight inches in di diameter. They became commercially available in 1971 as a component of IBM products and then were sold separately starting in 1972 by Memorex and others. And then that transitioned to the five and a half inch floppy disk that Michael that and Ryan, one. I'm sure, have seen. Yes. <laughs> and these are the, mu the much smaller ones. Much more convenient. Yes, much more convenient. These are new old stock. These are brand new disks. <laughs> so they're still making them? Actually, no. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, these are old, new old stock. Um, right. These are ones that I never got through that I've had for years and years. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, I wonder if they're still manufacturing these anywhere out there. Like if there's some company like, all right, we finally got an order for three. Let's get no, them done, folks. In, in fact, uh, even the uh, smaller three and a half uh, floppies not being produced anymore. So they're getting very, very expensive on eBay and Amazon and the like. Like $100 for a pack. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. Yeah. I had computer CRT monitor boxes full of those. If only I had known to keep them. I would have yeah. been rich to this day. Yeah. yeah, so it's just there. there's so much amazing history. Um, the five and a quarter inch floppy disks in 1976 were invented, was invented by Shugart and Associates. And by 1978, there were more than 10 manufacturers producing them. And a five and a quarter inch format in DOS-based PCs was 360 kilobytes starting for the double-sided double-density format using MFM encoding. Yes, we've been using MFM encoding for 
very long time. And in 1984, IBM actually introduced, um, with its PCAT model, the 1.2 megabyte dual-sided five and a quarter inch floppy disk. But it never became very popular because these ones took over. <laughs> Much more convenient. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the very less floppy too. Yes. <laughs> So by the end of the 1980s, five and a quarter inch discs had been replaced by these three and a half inch discs. And during this time, PCs frequently came equipped, equipped with drives of both sizes. Yep. By the mid 1990s, five and a quarter inch drives had virtually disappeared as the three and a half inch disc became the predominant floppy disc. The advantages of the three and a half inch disc was its higher capacity, which by uh, around the year 1986 could store 1,440 kilobytes or 1.44 megabytes. Because this, uh, the three and a three half inch disc had a smaller physical size and a rigid case. Uh, it provided better protection from dirt and you know other en environmental issues. And in fact, if someone touched the five and a quarter inch disc in this area, it could it could it could kill it. <laughs> Make it so it's unreadable or destroy yeah. it. Yeah. Now, when the when the three and a half inch disc came in, what was the the first one that I remember that just having to have? Number one was Wing Commander, which I think was like twenty five discs. The yeah. one I remember blowing away my dad and he was like just so excited because, you know, he was in computers and writing software and everything. Wasn't ever a big gamer, but the one time that he just like stopped and called the whole family over was a shareware <laughs> three and a half inch disc that had Wolfenstein on it. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time yes. I remember my dad getting into any kind of gaming at all because anytime he saw any of the console games... He was like, that's not true VGA graphics. That's not true. Like nothing was good to him that wasn't on a PC, which I get it because PC is amazing. But Wolfenstein was the one where he stopped and we had our dad just playing the game all night long. And it was the shareware version of Wolfenstein that yeah. came out that really. So awesome. to me, that was like the moment when I think about those discs is that moment's kind of in my head of seeing that shareware Wolfenstein version going around. It was a pretty cool Aww. moment in history. When I think about the floppy disks, I remember this is silly, I know, but I don't know how many people did this, but as a kid, I would play with the mechanism that, you know, when you pull it back and let it slide back and forth, like it's oh, got yeah. spring loaded <laughs> all the time. Yes. All the time. It was a fidget spinner before fidget spinners. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. I used to do that too. I'd be sitting there working yep. on a computer problem, flipping the disc. Yep, all yeah. the time. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, you know, another advantage, of course, of the uh, smaller disc was that these floppy discs were easy to damage and bend, which I don't want to bend this one because it's still usable. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to show you now actually a typical uh, computer uh, that had a floppy disk drive in it that you could use floppy disks with. All right, so it's Jill's showing us, of course, right away, a beige case. So you know yes. immediately that beige, <laughs> that beige color takes me back instantaneously. And that yeah. big giant power button. And please tell me there's a turbo button on there that case somewhere, Jill. There has to be a turbo Jill. button. If there's, is there yes, a turbo? Yes, there is. Yes, yes right the here. turbo. <laughs> yes. I love it. So here is the floppy disk drive. And see, there's even a tape backup on here as well and an, 
uh, one of the first generation CD-ROMs. This actually case originally had a five and a quarter inch floppy disk in it, which you know I later replaced with the, with this three and a half inch floppy. You upgraded and, it to the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's upgraded. It's actually a really nice computer. It's a 4060x. 266 megahertz with 16 megabytes of RAM. I have one of those machine. processors sitting in my case right there, the 486 oh, cool. 66 megahertz. Yeah. Awesome. If if you don't want to see an ugly beige one, make sure to watch my previous treasure hunt here on Destination Linux number episode number 266 for one of my pretty and colorful old machines named Cosmic Infinity. And that one has a custom blue three and a half fl floppy disk drive in it. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was awesome treasure hunt. We'll have that in the show notes for those who want to check it out. Yay. I also, I wanted to say, I love the sounds uh, of the floppy disk drive yes. when reading a disk. Now that's ASMR. That's true yes. ASMR there. I Absol could go to sleep absolutely. to the sound of floppy drives going. Yeah. I also uh, had a, a game where I kind of played. Play, I, I didn't really tell people I was doing it because I'd probably get yelled at by my parents if I did it. But I would try to like when you put in the, the floppy drive, it it po pops out the little eject button, right? So I would yeah. try to push the eject button as hard as I can so it shoot out the floppy. Shoot disk. out. And uh, I don't. I, I'm pretty sure I've got it a couple times to be like you know just all the, to actually <laughs> yeah. shoot out of the computer it was, like, it was it was i enjoyed Michael, it did you do yeah. anything computer wise on your computer it seems like you just thought a computer was a giant toy like it was like hot okay. wheels or something so as, you know? a, in terms of software yes i did use the computer quite a lot in terms of hardware it was a toy <laughs> i, I it admit it it was a were toy. you the one that took your cd-rom tray and put a drink on it no, I no no, uh -oh. no no I would never do that because that would possibly damage the computer. I knew not to do that stuff. All right, good, good, yeah. good. Just checking. And yeah, leading to the uh, going back to the sound of the floppy disk, I love you know it's almost to me it's almost a satisfying and comforting sound because for twenty years that's yeah. what I was hearing. Actually, more than twenty years because because we had the older floppy disks from the the seventies. So actually, more like over forty years for me. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> I mean, from so, that and to me, even server rooms, like at work. Yeah, when I got in good with IT. I would go and hang out and do my work in the server room because the air conditioner is on full blast. It's super chilly, and all the sounds of the servers humming was just an amazing backdrop to working. For yes, me. you know, I just absolutely. Loved it. Oh, cool. I love you know the floppy disk makes a. That's a really good impression, Jill. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. You could do voices and sound professionally, even. Perfect. So yeah, uh, uh, more more uh, history of the uh, floppy disk and its evolution is, uh, you know, before hard disks became affordable to the general population, floppy disks were often used to store a computer's operating system. So, you know, most home computers from the time have an elementary OS and basic stored in read-only memory with the option of loading a more advanced OS from a floppy disk. Like with an old uh, Apple II, so, so many old computers have um, old IBM XT. Most of those computers, you can boot the OS, whether it be um, DOS or Linux from a floppy disk. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that, that happened is by the early 1990s, the increasing software size meant that, uh, large packages like Windows or Adobe Photoshop 
or Linux required a dozen disks or more. And so we used to carry around big boxes like this. I love that she still has one of these. I, these used to be all over the office. This one has Windows 95 and Microsoft Office 95 in it. <laughs> and that's probably it. That's probably the yes. only things in there. All those disks <laughs> to do two programs. <laughs> and a few startup disks, but it's all Windows. Look how yeah. huge Windows was. And I also, of course, have Windows 3.1 and and everything in between. <laughs> yep. It was not convenient to carry that with you everywhere you go to show off some new software, but... You know, looking back on it, the nostalgia-wise, and they had key locks on them too. Like yeah. it wouldn't oh, yeah. be hard that, for somebody to break the cheap, thin plastic. Like that was gonna stop somebody from getting I your know. disc. But you know, it was there. there. It, there it, it is. made you That's feel like lock. you were top secret. Yeah. So there's the key this, lock. <laughs> this has the has the lock, and I even have the extra uh, key on the, on the top of it. Thank goodness, know, Jill, score. because if that if that if that lock <laughs> breaks, you'd never be able to get in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like you make sure you have that backup key. Yeah, yeah, super safe. <laughs> okay, so yeah, as I was saying before, I used to have to carry literally hundreds of floppy disks with me as a student for my computer animation projects. And I'll give you a little sample of that. This is one semester's worth oh my God. Wow. of floppy disks. And there are several hundred in here. And look at the bag, Comp CompUSA. <laughs> CompUSA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not around anymore. Man, there's a lot of museum in this show, let me uh, tell you. Okay, yeah, this is why we love Jill. She even has, like... The original like, bag. Yeah, the bag yeah. you get from buying products from a company that doesn't exist anymore. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Amazing. <laughs> I love the fact that you still have your uh, student floppy disk as well, because I, I know when I, when I got rid of most of that stuff, and I wish I hadn't, but it's so awesome to see that you have, you have all that stuff. Yeah. Awesome. In fact, they're all cataloged. I have a catalog program of all my disks, and I had to because you had to be so organized. You know, the animation projects typically were, you know, 100 disks. So you had to be organized, and you had to catalog yeah. them. And then later... After that semester, I would I would put them in a database so I could keep track of them. It, it was so you know cumbersome um, to carry these bags around. I usually had uh, two large school bags, sometimes three, and it was difficult because I was a starving student and I had to take the bus. <laughs> I don't drive because I'm half blind. That was an issue. So yeah. <laughs> my back would, would be in pain sometimes after the day was over. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were really excited when CDs came out, you know, a little oh, bit lighter. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I always carried three copies of every disc with me because of frequent disc failure. Storing and reading animation on disc was hard, hard on them because of their large file size and constantly needing to access the data on them. And I've had many projects where the original two copies of floppies died and I had to rely on my third copy. <laughs> it was a lifesaver. <laughs> this is why I always tell my family, friends, and students and those that watch Destination Linux to always have three copies of all your data. <laughs> and one of those copies needs to be on a floppy. Yeah. Is that our advice officially? Yes. I think it be. Yeah. But remember, don't copy that floppy. Don't copy that floppy! Don't yes, copy, don't that, copy floppy. that floppy. Yeah. Would you download a car, Michael? Jeez. Yes, if I could download a car, that's fantastic. <laughs> 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 the, the ridiculousness of that, those ads, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I just, I had to be so meticulous about my cataloging. Everything is cataloged. Well, this was important not only because you needed to know what was on the disc, but also because you would have 10 discs or 25 discs or more to install program. And so when you were installing one of these programs, it would tell you after (laughs) the first disc, insert disc two, insert disc three, and insert disc four. And if you had them out of order or you didn't know which one was which, well, that's going to create a problem. You're never going to get your program installed. And it took a ton of time anyway, so you really didn't want to do that. So you really did take the time to document your programs fully because of the time it took just to install something. Yeah, You kids will never understand what we (laughs) went through back in the day. We used to to walk in six feet of snow just to get to school each day. (laughs) Yes. And use floppies. Both ways. Uphill. Both ways. And you know, the... The first time I installed uh, Slackware Linux uh, version 1.00 in 1993, it was distributed on 24 three and a half floppy disk images. That That's I because downloaded the bloat from a bulletin so board system. So no, because it had it contained all the software. There wasn't a thing that was readily available called the internets where you could download software. Oh, so that, it had thing. To contain. that thing. Right. Internet's bloat too. All of it's bloat. <laughs> yeah. Everything's bloat. Yeah. You yeah, know what, you know what's and... not bloat, Ryan? <laughs> what's that? Micro AI. It will fit on the floppy disk. No problem. I down. I downloaded the entire repo just a few minutes ago. Tested uh-huh. it. it. It would even fit on one of those eight-inch floppies. Are you? Yes. Saying, how big is Micro AI? Not very big. It's like eight <laughs> kilobytes. <laughs> eight kilobytes. Woo-hoo! This shows you the genius of my coding that I was able to capture yep. your entire brain in eight kilobytes. Of <laughs> your, yes. Your coding is so optimized. It's, Thank, it's, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I don't believe in bloat. And of course, with uh, floppy disks, distribution of larger packages was re- thankfully replaced by CD-ROMs, DVDs, and then later online distribution. And I have all these floppy disks. Actually, they're all backed up. Early CDRs, early zip disks, early SyQuest disks. Go down the line. I've got it. Got them backed up on everything, <laughs> so I can awesome. access them when I need it's them awesome. to get to my data. And there have been times I actually I've needed to access some of my animation work as a student. And then when I, of course, I started my own business when floppy disks were still still the thing. I still have to sometimes go back to those disks and get assets that I need for for new animations. Your organization and you keeping these things is so amazing. First of all, because of the field you're in, that you could go back and look at animations you were creating or teaching on software 15, 20 years ago versus today. And that has to just be incredible Mm -hmm. to go back and take the time to do that sometimes. I mean, sure, we have, you know, the latest and greatest software today with all the graphics like Michael AI. But back then, you had some amazing stuff too, you know, to go back and enjoy. It was just I. I actually kind of kind of wish we had had a huge version of a floppy disk now that hold holds several gigabytes. You know, I think it would be cool, be cool. Just to have the, I agree. the sound. The, it would be slow, of course. It would be faster than it re- originally was because of speeds of today. But right. it would still be. It would be fun to hear the retro sounds on, say, storing a one gigabyte file. <laughs> they could so, also make a drive that's basically looks like a floppy but really has a usb drive in it and then just but it's the sound that's missing michael like you you copy something to a usb drive there's no sound it's like driving a prius like you ever almost got run over by a prius because they have no sound 
Like it happens in the parking lot. Like, you know, like you need the sound. They need to just make the USB drive mimic the sound. Like it has no purpose, but it sounds like that's a million dollar idea right there. I literally, when you plug it in, it starts writing. It just makes the sound. Oh my yeah, gosh! Instead of flashing genius. a light, yeah. it just makes a random sound. It has a little yeah. speaker, like on the it. Yeah. like the Priuses do now. They make them so that they make an engine sound, a fake engine yep. sound. Yeah, we do that I with like USB it. drives. There we um, go. You totally could because they they also make these USB drives that are like really weird and awkward shapes and whatnot. There's plenty of space to put a little speaker in there and you get get power from the computer anyway. People, we're giving you a million dollar idea, or at you, least a ten dollar. Yeah, at least a ten dollar. Dozens and dozens of dollars idea are yours if you They're yours yeah. to happen, take, folks. Yeah, <laughs> the c- CDs kind of killed everything. <laughs> so being able to burn all your data on CDs. and CDs were amazing in their own right for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. When you grew up with this technology, when we've grown up with this technology, there's a certain nostalgia that comes with seeing it and using it, and being able to run things from it. Everything was DOS for me back in the day. And actually, I think that helped me a long way with the terminal way later in oh, life yeah, when I absolutely. learned Linux. But because yep. I was very comfortable in DOS at the time. So, yeah, things come around. Oh, yeah, I have DOS 6.22 here, too. Nice. <laughs> of course you do, Jill. Which, if you go to some of the old school people like my dad will say was the greatest operating system. To this day, he'll still be like, if we could only go back to DOS where it was a real operating system and not this Windows stuff, like, that's my dad, yeah. 100% all the time. Like, DOS was it. Uh, DOS was his kind of stepping stone for trying to make Unix easier. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a lot of the similar uh, protocols and commands yeah. in the in the. And I remember when DOS. we sold computers, my dad created a DOS-based operating system that would come up with a menu. And so yeah. if you wanted to install something or anything else, it was his own custom DOS interface that would do the installs for you, would do your saves for you and your backups for you and all this stuff he'd written. Now, we never thought like Bill Gates to go sell it for a bajillion dollars, which was our fault. But yeah, it came with every yeah. computer we sold, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely right. In fact, I used to make my own custom menus and everything. And I mm-hmm. auto exec back config.sys and I would have it load, you know, mouse drivers, CD-ROM drivers and had a menu. I, I even had a Cosmic Infinity. That computer, I had several versions of Linux as a uh, DOS loopback operating system. So you'd boot DOS and then run Linux in DOS. But you, you were you were and still are the most wanted DOS hawk, hacker of all time. You're the most wanted DOS hacker in the world. Yeah. And so they're going to, you know, there's wanted posters still from the no. 1990s yep. out there. You see, looking you see Mitnick and then Jill. It would be- Yeah. Yep. So we know yeah. about some of your programs you wrote, Jill. We're very well aware of them. <laughs> and my elite BBSs. In fact, that's where I got most of my my first Linux distros before before the web and you know, was invented. I got yeah. that from Leap BBSs and uh, a lot of the, the first software I used. And then, of course, you could buy buy the software on discs in the stores. So that was cool, too. <laughs> well, Jill, this has been absolutely amazing run through the history of this awesome storage stuff. I hate that yeah. it's not with us, especially the sounds of yeah. it, but somebody could take our billion-dollar idea and run with it. Anything else you want to talk about before we move on? Okay, so yeah, as as a nice uh, outro, you know, like I was saying, for more than two decades, the floppy disk was the primary external writable storage device used. And most computing 
environments actually before the 1990s were non-networked. You know, floppy disks were the primary means to transfer data between computers. And we used to call that method known, it's known as sneaker net. <laughs> and people say that today about USB flash drives. When you yeah. give a, a Linux distro to someone, you're sneaker netting it <laughs> on, a, on a flash drive. I never knew what that meant. I didn't know that. I'm going to yeah. start using it, though, so I sound cooler. So when I get yeah. I've heard, I've USB, heard of sneaker net, but I've never, I, never, I, didn't I knew I'd do what it was. No idea. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah and, and one of the reasons, so there's so many reasons why this became the save, save icon, but but what, one is, unlike hard disks, actually weren't seen seen because uh, they were hidden in, inside the computer. The floppy disks are seen and handled by people. And, you know, because of these factors, a picture of the 3.5-inch floppy disk became the interface icon for saving data. So that's where that icon comes from. Amazing. <laughs> Very cool. These years of using floppy disks. <laughs> Well, kids, so, today with your conveniences, you now know what we had to go through back in the day to save our data. So very hundreds of go. these things. Hundreds of them. Uphill and six feet of snow. Yeah. Back and forth, with no shoes. Yes, exactly. Like also no coat. We the only thing we could keep ourselves warm was the floppy disk. That's it. That's it. Well, Jill, thank you for yet another absolutely amazing treasure hunt, and a lot of nostalgia for me too was hitting this whole time. So very hey. awesome, and thank you so much. Yeah, so much fun. <laughs> it's fantastic, and also the the fact that you covered the storage of floppy disk is really interesting because just a couple of days ago, I found a bunch of old seed music CDs that I had from when I was a oh, teenager. Cool. I don't know cool. how I kept up with them, but I ha I found them in a box and I was like, "You have the original Hanson on CD? That's amazing." Who does it? <laughs> good point, good point. That was awesome, okay. Jill. That was so okay. amazing. I, I loved it. You know, this was this was something you all all knew about, but a lot of a lot of the younger our younger audience doesn't. And yeah. I, just, I think it was great. We've, Listen, we've, you said we know about, about it, but you taught icons. me sneaker net. And next time I hand okay. somebody a USB, I'm going to be like, Good. here, Good. Michael. I want to pass it to you on the sneaker net. Yeah. There you go. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, I got it. I got Yay. it. Yay. That's. God, we're so good at these visuals. We are. <laughs> I always took it at face value. It was like, it's sneaker net. But I always thought that oh. it meant you're sneaking around, not that you're wearing sneakers oh. to walk somewhere. Nico, oh, so. Nico Jet said slippers with arch support. Arch yeah, that's support. Nice. Arch support. Oh, oh, no. oh, Nico, you're like one of my favorite people on the planet. I just oh, so ass. close Great. to getting through this oh, episode. I finally got a reference. chance to say arch on the episode. It makes we were me so, so happy. Close. We were so Thank close. you, Nico. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com/dln. Password Manager is software that allows you peace of mind knowing your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you the tools to store all your passwords so you don't have to have a floppy drive around or keep a floppy disk with <laughs> you because Bitwarden can do it all for you right now in a secured vault. It can auto-generate those passwords for you, even automatically fill them in on login forms. You can access your data across a plethora of different devices, whether it's your Android phone, whether you want to do it through your PC, if you want to have a tablet, all of that stuff, Bitwarden can be loaded on all your devices so you can take your passwords everywhere with you. You can even use it from the command line if you want. 
Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your device, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And I mentioned you can get started completely free, but for just $10 a year, you can get their premium services. One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Support, all this inflation happening everywhere else. Everything's more expensive, not Bitwarden, still $10 for the entire year there. Now they also added a feature where you can switch between accounts. So if you have a business account and a personal account, you can now switch between those right there in the app. Bitwarden Love is that. amazing. Head right now to bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started. And we want to thank Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So in the news this week, there's something really interesting that's happened. It's controversial. We had the, we called this episode when I was writing it, the bitter, sweet, and salty episode, just because of this article here that we're going to talk about. Well, and the that's sweetness was the treasure hunt. Yes, for sure. yes. This <laughs> is where it could get salty or bitter. We're not sure. Um, is it time to let go of DuckDuckGo? I've talked about my absolute love for the search engine in the past. I've done videos on it. Their application has done absolutely amazing things, exposing the privacy issues that are with stock Android devices with their app protection. They also have email protection tools in their app. I pretty much love everything that DuckDuckGo does. The last few weeks have been a rough ride for DuckDuckGo though, in the privacy and security community specifically. And this all started from a tweet from their CEO, Gabrielle Weinberg, wanting to show support for Ukraine by stating in part that at DuckDuckGo, we've been rolling out search updates that downrank sites associated with Russian disinformation. This created a lot of controversy. A lot of people were mad about DuckDuckGo about this. However, there was another controversy hitting DuckDuckGo as there were claims that DuckDuckGo was removing results related to piracy sites such as YouTube DL and the Pirate Bay. Now, it's important to note with that last one that DuckDuckGo completely denied their filtering any pirating sites or tools from their results. The CEO said this in response to the controversy, hoping to clear up some misconceptions about your private search engine. First, there's a completely made up headline going around this weekend. We are not purging any media outlets from results. Anyone can verify this by searching for an outlet, outlet and see it coming up in the results. Similarly, we are not purging YouTube DL or Pirate Bay, and they both have actually been continuously available in our results. If you search for them by name, which most people do, our site operator, which hardly anyone uses, is having issues and we are looking into it. So it's important to note, I think, because I've seen a lot of different discussions going around about DuckDuckGo and how it works, is that DuckDuckGo uses various APIs, according to Wikipedia, of other websites to show the results and queries. And to do this, they have search partners like Bing in there. Mainly Bing is one of the big ones that they use and they also have their own crawler. So that's how they get some of their results in there and remove some of the, or make sure that your searches are more private is they're removing you from that step of being captured in that search process. So with that, I wanted to get into the discussion. Do you think DuckDuckGo overstepped here? And is there a reason to stop using them as a search provider? Michael, Jill, your opinion on this issue? Let's start with Jill. I'm going to give DuckDuckGo a pass on this one, especially regarding the war and the current climate. You know, like you were saying, the other search engines are are also uh, not have, have those uh, searches that are misinformation coming up. 
that's a thing. And as far as YouTube DL goes in the Pirate Bay, honestly, uh, about uh, three weeks ago, I did a YouTube DL uh, search on DuckDuckGo, and I found it on the first page. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that this is uh, kind of people blowing stuff out of proportions like that typically yeah. happens quite a bit in terms of in these this kind of realm of of discussion and I think that this is basically just talking about curation and moderation which is the entire point of a search engine. Yeah. So and maybe they were saying like there might be a bug that created a thing people not being able to find certain stuff but if you specify that you wanted to search exactly for something you would find that thing. So that means that it's not being purged because purged means removing completely. And if it's accessible at all, then it's not removing it completely. <laughs> There's two interesting things here. Number one is we have to keep in mind that a lot of these governments, even outside of this specific situation, have been known and caught and it's all over the news for having thousands of farms of bots of people to basically take things and search engine optimize false stories and false information and create lots of propaganda and things like that. So a search engine, as you mentioned, Michael, is curated by its very definition. There is no such thing as a search engine that's not curated, whether you're using Bing, Google, DuckDuckGo, mm -hmm. any of them, they're all curated to try to find the most relevant site out there, period. And so a lot of people want to DuckDuckGo, not for its search engine not being curated, because they all are, but because of the privacy features that it presents in there. Their idea of downranking some of the stuff that's being purposefully manipulated to me is what I would expect a search engine to do to create a properly curated search engine. Because if right. I find a way to scam it and I can make every search just show dosgeek.com, then I would expect DuckDuckGo is going to go, you know, that's not really relevant. Mm -hmm. That's not real information that has nothing to do with cameras, Ryan. I'm like, but I know Wendy, so I should be in there. Anyways, my point is that the curated mm -hmm. results is a thing. But if you're looking for alternatives here, then Cirques is an alternative I've talked about that I absolutely love. So if you're bothered by the story, go check out Cirques. As an option, you can set up your own server. And you have, and it, by the way, also uses results from other search engines. So you're not going to get away from the curation because all of them are curating. So it's not the perfect solution, but I just like Cirque. So I'm going to mention it, you know, go set up Cirque. It's kind of fun thing to do. We actually so covered Cirque on a previous episode of Destination Linux. So you can learn more about that. And we have uh, lots of cool content there. We, we dive really deep into Cirque. So if you are interested, definitely mm -hmm. check that out. Link in the show notes. Yep. There's Hoogle. There's Quant, I think, Q-W-A-N-T. There's Start Page. There's Brave Search. Beta out there, and Jill, you added Ghostry yeah. Glow Search as an I, option too. I've been using that one a, a lot because I like love the Ghostry web browser, and the Glow Search is now free, and then it has a paid for version without ads. There you go. Now, I think that a lot of people who are looking into this information, number one, I love that there's people out there who are always looking objectively to say, is this a slippery slope? If if this company does X. Does this mean that YZ is going to follow next and it could be abused? And I think the answer to people looking into that stuff is, thank goodness people are out there asking those questions. But we also mm -hmm. have to think to ourselves, right, of, of what are the bigger implications and does one move like this definitely mean it's a slippery slope or is this a company trying to protect things from manipulation out there happening? And in this case, for me, I'm going to keep using DuckDuckGo. Like I said, the stuff that they do 
For instance, mm -hmm. the protection on my phone itself is so important to me with thousands of trackers trying to find out where I'm at a day based on you know apps and financial apps and things like that, that I couldn't imagine not using them. Now, if they continue to do stuff like that, then maybe it's a different discussion. But at this point, there are alternatives out there if it bothers you enough. But I think DuckDuckGo is just trying to create the best environment they can with their search results. Mm -hmm. And their web browser for mobile is incredible. I've yeah, been it loving is. it. It's really good. I'm actually happy you brought up the web browser because last time we talked about it for apps, we talked about the animation to set fire to all the tabs. Yes. <laughs> and I went and did it. It's awesome. Doesn't it Love feel doing so it satisfying? All the time. Yeah. I, every time I everybody's like, oh, I need to close these apps. I get to close these apps. Burn them all. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Yeah. It's ridiculous. If you download the DuckDuckGo app, click the little fire icon. I open a bunch of web pages and <laughs> click the little fire icon and watch everything explode. It's amazing. It's such a good animation. <laughs> it's, fanta it's fantastic. I, I'm a big fan of that. And also, I'm a big fan of DuckDuckGo. So I will continue to use them. And I think that curated results is fine. And if they were being, if they were taking stuff out that was, you know, purging like the actual report of people saying that that was happening and it was true, then that would be a problem because that would be a, 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 an actual issue. But they're not doing that. And I think we're good. So Jill, take us into some more sweet here in gaming. So now away from search and for some uh, fun gaming news. So our wonderful Matt from GameSphere is going to be doing a 24-hour charity game stream for Cure, Citizens United for Research and Epilepsy. It's a nonprofit organization based in Chicago, Illinois. And Matt's charity game stream will start on June 20th at 9 a.m. and go 24 hours. So make sure to watch and maybe you can come in and play a little bit of Among Us. Yeah, there you go. I heard that <laughs> if enough people show up. he's talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I heard Sus. if enough people show up, Matt's going to go 72 hours. So you heard that here yeah, first. You're welcome, right. Matt. That little welcome, comment Matt. you left, the little troll comment, that's what you get, yeah. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So with today's game, we're going to uh, talk about a game you can actually pick up right now on Steam called Lumencraft. And this game describes itself like this. Desperate, outnumbered, and with gun turrets as your only companion, Lumencraft is a top-down shooter with base-building elements. Drill through a fully destructible environment to reach preci precious resources and spend them on weapons and tools protecting the last bastion of humanity. Emerge into a fully destructible environment where light and shadow play key roles, build your base, dig some tunnels, and find Lumen, humanity's only chance for survival. Oh, this game looks actually beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it does. Very nice. And it's an early access, but it already has over 248 very positive reviews. It looks like so much fun to play on a Steam Deck as well. That's what I always think about, Absolutely. even though Valve yeah, hasn't yeah. sent me my Steam Deck yet. Same Valve. here. Valve. <laughs> I'm waiting. Valve. <laughs> I always think about the Steam Deck and what I will be doing when I finally get one, Valve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Valve. It looks like I, I heard uh, Matt uh, got his notification. So I know. Of all people, give it to the person who hosts GameSphere first. I mean, <laughs> yeah, come on. Of course. It makes no of sense. Course. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I really like the, the graphics and the sound design is really nice in this game. 
And one of the coolest things is that it uses the open source Godot engine, which is one of my yeah. my favorite uh, engines. Uh, and I recommend for new people getting into gaming and learning um, a game engine is the Godot engine. I was looking forward to it. So you say you mentioning what engine it was used because I was waiting for Godot. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice bad joke, Michael. <laughs> And what's really cool is it also has a remote play together option. And and it has a local co-op and split view as well. <laughs> and you can actually buy Looming Craft for $11.99 on Steam. That's awesome. I'll buy it, Valve, once I get my Steam yeah. Deck. Until then, it's a good price. I'll probably still buy it. But the point is, I want my Steam Deck. Yeah, Valve. Valve. <laughs> Well, in our software spotlight this week, listen, we know what makes up the internet. Michael, what is the most important thing on the internet today? Uh, what? Oh, oh, 100%. Uh, cat videos. Cat videos. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cat videos are the most important thing on the internet. Without cat videos, what would we really have? We'd just go back to floppy disk, probably. So this week, <laughs> I'm bringing you Kitty Terminal. What makes Kitty Terminal special besides a really cute name? Well, Kitty is a terminal emulator that uses OpenGL for rendering. It supports terminal features like graphics, Unicode, TrueColor, OpenType, ligatures, mouse protocol, focus tracking, bracketed paste, and more. It offloads the rendering to your GPU for lower system load, uses threaded rendering for absolutely minimal latency, and the performance trade-offs can be completely tuned within it itself. Now this is a terminal that you can't handle all of the settings and things through a nice little hamburger menu. Instead, everything's done through little keyboard shortcuts like control shift enter, for instance, allows you to create a new window within the terminal. There are also multiple layouts you can switch between using things like control shift L. So if you're one of those keyboard macro-y types like Michael does with his little blank keyboard over there that nobody understands, <laughs> this is the perfect terminal for you. It has a also a powerful framework for scripting and you can create mm -hmm. small terminal programs, get this, called kittens. Is that Aww. not the most adorable thing in the world? Fantastic. Fantastic. So there you go. When you run Jill, these... your impressions are amazing. First the floppy disk, <laughs> now the cat. It's like a cat was right there in my ear. It was perfect. So when you run these these kittens through Kitty Terminal, uh -huh. is that because is that means you're running these on the command feline? Oh, come on. Come on, Michael. You're banned. Yeah. Yeah. Go sit and time that out on your good. stool. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> you know, I've actually been enjoying using Kitty the last few, last few days. And honestly, I've been using it on and off for several years. Actually, it came out in, 19, in uh, 2017. 1917. <laughs> oh, sorry. 2017. Oh, floppy disk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not as old as a floppy disk. <laughs> and I love how uh, quick and nimble it is because it uses the open open GL to speed things up. What's really cool is if you run commands, uh, a lot of a lot of different Linux commands, but especially like Inksy, and you do an Inksy tack capital F, the stats come up really quickly. You know, usually in like Xterm or mm -hmm. GNOME terminal, it kind of reads it very slowly. <laughs> but in Kitty, it's just boom, it's up. <laughs> All your system stats are there. Yeah. <laughs> And also, it's, it's a, a really quick way to, to fix a kernel panic. You just, like, knock it off the table. And it's, uh, it's, like, it's problem solved. Michael, Michael. Michael. <laughs> well, listen, I told you we were going to have a lot of sweet in the episode, too. And I think Kitty Terminal definitely <laughs> qualifies as some sweet. It's a really Absolutely. cool program. It also will take joke, a learning curve. Sweet. 
You are not going to be able to probably just install this and be able to do all the cool features without looking at the manual and kind of understanding the shortcuts. But once you get those down, it's a pretty awesome thing to check out. So check out <laughs> Kitty Terminal. And it has a cute little kitty icon too. So I mean, yeah. for that reason alone, install it's always it. nice. So our tip of the week this week is also going to be sweet. And that is stat. You can open your terminal and run stat and then the name of the file. And this command will output the stats of any file from the terminal, including the info like uh, the size of the file, the blocks, the permissions, access that are applied to the file, uh, any modifications that have been done and when they've been done, the birth date of the file, the you know the, also when date were changes, so like the modification date, as I was saying. There's tons of stuff, and that's just a sample of what you can get. There's tons of great information you can get from doing using STAT. You can also do something similar that we did in a previous episode where we did a tip of the week where you could use STAT to find out when your system was first installed, and there's so many other ways you can do it. And it's a simple command to remember. And, you know, it's super powerful, very simple. It's kind of like KDE. Simple by default, powerful when needed. Nice. Well, I'm going to talk about the Linux conferences coming up stat. <laughs> stat. Yes. I had a dad joke in there, Michael. How'd I yes. do? Yes. Pretty good. I, yeah. I love it. I love it. We need to keep that going. Keep that flow going. Yeah. So there's the Linux App Summit, which is virtual April 29th through the 30th. The Red Hat Summit virtual May 10th through the 11th. Open SUSE Conference 2022, June 2nd through the 4th in person. Open Source Summit North America in person or virtual Austin, Texas, June 21st through 24th. And Scale July 28th through the 31st, where you will guaranteed see Jill. Woo-hoo! You will guaranteed see, Mike, see Michael. And you yes, will yes. maybe guaranteed even see me there. So Woo-hoo! if you want to hang out with the crew, mostly probably Jill, then you <laughs> want to go to Scale. I love how you're like, maybe guaranteed might see me. I'm I'm right there. You know, I'm right there. Jill Jill hasn't bribed me enough with food. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I need. Uh. It is. It is the Linux hug fest. I love it. Yes. Also, Ryan, Ryan, if we if you go, then there's also Disneyland. So, yes. That's Absolutely, true. Yeah. and uh, Jill will make sure that you go to said Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, that's it. Our show, a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And if you miss the recording, you can become a patron and get the unedited version of the show that is posted the same day as we do the show. So that, And also, you get to join us in the 60,000-square-foot virtual stadium and, and be a part of the patron-only post-show that happens every week after the show. So go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute to sign up. You get links to Destination Linux Patreon or the sponsors, depending on which one you want to use. And you can become a patron and join us and get all sorts of other perks. And also, you can go to dealinstore.com right now to pick up some swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, yes, even stickers, and so much more. So... Go check it out. Go to dealinstore.com. You can get Hardware Addicts merch. You can get 30, 33% more Jill merch. You can get Linux 91 merch. So much great stuff. Dealinstore.com. 
make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts Gamesphere, and Linux Saloon. So everyone head to textdigital.com and subscribe to all these great shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Remember that right now on the forums, you can go if you've been interested in joining the network, starting a podcast, we're launching a whole geek culture segment of our podcast and videos there. You'll get all the details and information on how you can submit a show right there in the forum. So if you've ever wanted to join the network, if you've ever had big dreams of podcasting, you can be part of Tux Digital. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.